Hello, thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Lots of gratitude to those of you who are supporting this work via Patreon. With your help, the podcast can continue to grow. And if you're interested in directly supporting this podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash kindmind and choose among three tiers. A kind patron is $5 a month pledge, which will give you access to bonus episodes. The kinder patron is a $10 a month option. And with that, you get access to the Kind Mind Studio on my website, which has more than a dozen guided meditations, including a, a brand new one that was just added on forgiveness meditation. Some other new features have been updated. There's now a mystic poetry section where you can listen to me reading some of my favorite poems. There's wisdom stories, which you can listen to to relax before bed. Some of those stories come from previous episodes, and some are not included on the podcast. And then there is a recommended reading list, the books that changed my mind, and the first ten are up there with links to where you can find them. And finally, there is a kindest patron option which is $20 a month, so you get everything at the other tiers, plus unlimited pass to any of the Kind Mind gatherings online or when we resume in person, and that's where most of these episodes are recorded. So please check that out, patreon.com forward slash kindmind, and thank you so much for supporting me. The name of this episode is Live Free or Dialogue, which is also the title of my conversation series, which I recently started on YouTube. I hope you can check that out if you haven't yet. You can also subscribe to my channel, Michael Todd Fink, on YouTube. That name is a play on words from the New Hampshire state motto, Live Free or Die, which is probably one of the most famous state mottos. But this little twist on it means that if we can all live free, great. There's nothing to talk about. But since we're not there yet, we need to have deeper, more nuanced, patient conversation with each other so that we can achieve it, so that everybody can be free and thrive. And so this series and the explanation in this episode is to promote that so that we don't have to resort to fighting and violence. This is no small crisis that we're in, and I'm not just speaking about the pandemic, but the, the crisis of understanding and the bipolar nature of discussion among society leaves little room for context, for nuance, for exploration, for cooperation and a real spirit of inquiry to solve our problems together. Recent events have pushed these tensions to the edge. I'd like to start out by reading a passage from a book I really love from nearly 100 years ago, just simply called Earth, by poet Frank Townsend, which I think illustrates the limits of language. People came to me saying, this is fatalism and that materialism. Here are romanticism, classicism, socialism, and so forth. I answered, to you it may be so, but to me it is as if you were classifying water, saying, here is an eddy, there a whirlpool, here calm, there turbulence. 
Yet even while you speak, the breaking waves turn to smoothness, and under still waters, hidden currents flow. Life is not a static thing, but perpetual dynamic change. So in this episode, I try to explain the deeper meaning of the word dialogue as different from discussion, debate, and so on. And for the most part, I am encouraging people who were in the audience that day to practice this. But I failed to include that it's just as important to try to observe this happening as well. You won't get this oftentimes in mainstream media. You may have to seek out other podcasts where there are long-form conversations where people have really open-spirited dialogue. And I want to thank Maureen Muldoon for inviting me back to her spiritual community known as Speakeasy, which is a really beautiful group of people that are open-minded around spiritual topics. And I've spoken there a number of times, and she gave me the opportunity to address the group and take some questions. So I've included that in the later part of this episode. However, there was one question from Richard, I believe, that I think I failed to answer fully. I got off on a tangent, but he also mentions in this question something about uh, me assuming that people want to dialogue and want to embody the qualities like respect and openness and patience and understanding and kindness. So I wanted to add here that No, I don't expect that everybody wants to dialogue. I was specifically giving those instructions for the audience. I was operating with the premise that the people in spiritual life are curious about healing and cooperation and so on. So so I was also saying to recognize when other people do not want to play by those rules. It's hard to have a game if there's no rules. I think as events unfold and we revisit and reflect on our history, we're getting different insights about the past. I've also been a student of hermeneutics in philosophy in Ireland, and I've realized that it's very difficult to analyze thought in different time periods. So, of course, we can recognize moral failings pretty easily from the past based on what we now collectively respect. But it is hard to say how much we would have realized that in a different time period. I have talked with other friends and suggested that a hundred years from now, I think that people will find the way the average American lives to be reprehensible in many respects. I don't need to go too into it, but the daily behaviors in American life and throughout the world in many indirect ways sponsor different types of oppression, whether it's oppression of people and exploitation of labor in Asia or the exploitation of animals, and it's not very conscious to most people. But as we evolve and we don't need the manual labor to make our phones, and we don't need to mine the earth in the way that we do for our technology, or we don't need to torture 
billions of animals because cells can be grown in a laboratory, if and when we can move past some of those systems, it's quite probable that our descendants will look back and can judge us quite harshly. Uh, But I thank Richard for that question. The tensions in our communication remind me of the parable of the blind man and the elephant, which dates back to BC in Asia and has been found in texts in various faiths from Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism. It's about a group of blind men who encounter an elephant for the first time, and their only way to make sense of what it is is through the sense of touch. One at a time, they reach out to feel the animal. One grabs the trunk, thinks it's like a large snake. One touches the body, the side, and thinks to himself, it's like a large wall. One touches the leg, thinking an elephant is like a pillar. One holds the ear, thinks it feels soft like a lotus leaf. One touches the tusk feels the smoothness and thinks it's like a sharp spear. And one touches only the tail, thinking it's like a small rope. When they return to each other, they begin to argue because they start to believe that all the other men are being dishonest. And in most versions of the story, it results in violence. In the 19th century, an American poet by the name of John Godfrey Sachs created his own version that became very popular in Europe. In the end, he explains that the elephant is a metaphor for God, and the six blind men represent different religions, each with some deep psychological insight, but lacking the full experience of reality. So the moral of the story is the human tendency to lay claim to absolute truth, and it speaks to the need to share, to cooperate, because of how limited one person's knowledge can be. I was also talking about deep conversation as so nourishing for our minds, and that it's kind of like the difference between fast food, which is often online exchange, and homemade meals. It takes time, but it's way healthier. And uh, I forgot to mention that That inspiration came from a real conversation that I had with my friend Allie. I had a jazz guitar teacher briefly who gave me a lesson that still stands out in my mind. He was helping me learn how to improvise, and he asked me to solo over a sequence of chords. But he said I was limited to only one note, a D note, and only the D note in a certain position on the guitar. So at first I thought, well, I can't construct melodies with one note. And he said, forget about melodies. Think of expression and what you want to convey. And as we looped through that chord progression, gradually I started to understand the power of one note. It's not just that frequency, but the tone, the volume. The timbre. Timbre is like the difference between this exact note on a piano versus a trumpet. The attack, the decay, or sustain, and more. So 
Words are very similar. It's important to think about the words that we use and the power of one word. I see how quick we are to judge each other and label each other as idiots or stupid when we think, and and perhaps are right, that someone is doing or thinking the wrong thing. But in my work over decades in hospitals and psychiatric centers, I see the power that words have on people's psyche. Illnesses like eating disorders, depression, PTSD, often are preceded by trauma with words. You know, somebody being told they're ugly or being left by the most important person in their life because they're not attractive enough and being told that repeatedly. It doesn't always lead to somebody embracing the opposite. I think I see this in sports and in public life where an athlete or a celebrity is taunted as the villain, and then they gradually start to embrace that, behave that way. That's the effect of shaming. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if that's what we want, if we want people to be more idiotic by calling them idiots, then okay. But understanding this effect of words, it seems like it would make more sense to remind people of their inner beauty, to take the time to explain the potential for understanding, for cooperation, for love. The Kriya Yoga Master Paramahamsa Hariharananda said, the tongue is more powerful than the revolver because the bullet can only pierce you once, but the word can pierce the heart again and again. Words weave a spell over the minds of people. Propaganda. Shame. So, it's very fitting that the construction of a word is called spelling. And lastly, before we jump into this episode, I just want to touch again on how important kindness is for me personally, and why this podcast is called Kind Mind, as opposed to, I don't know, Brave Mind, or Open Mind, or something else, not just because it rhymes, but because when I think about my hierarchy of values, kindness feels like the authentic way up the mountain to me. I know there's a good case for something like honesty or courage to be made for that to be a solid, virtuous foundation. But I can think of situations where one could find the courage to be cruel, one could find the courage to do something foolish, one can be honest to a fault, one can be truthful about something that causes a a lot of harm. Not that I'm saying that I think one should be timid, or that one shouldn't be truthful, but I think with kindness, you have to take the aid of all of these values. To be kind takes strength. To be kind takes courage. To be kind, you you may need to be honest. I sometimes feel kindness supersedes compassion for me, because compassion is specifically for those who are suffering, whereas kindness is for all. Everyone we meet and everything we encounter is an opportunity for kindness. Well, thank you again for listening, for all your support. There's a lot more episodes that have been recorded that I'm in the process of editing, so 
I hope to get another one up soon. As always, please rate and review this podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please share with friends. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash kindmind. And now I give you the rest of the 45th episode, Live Free or Dialogue. Thank you. It's good to be here with all of you. Since Maureen and I talked about this idea for a topic, the art of dialogue, my social media has been inundated with advertisements for improving your conversation skills. <laughs> so maybe I need to take them up on that and then I'll have more to report next time. But I do think this topic is more relevant now than ever before. We're facing multiple challenges, multiple crises, including the pandemic, the health crisis, the public health crisis, economic crisis, the fight for justice. And we're seeing the pandemic expose more of the wealth and health inequality throughout the country and around the world. I think we're also in a very unique situation when dealing with these different challenges because we have a culture that more or less rewards people for being great at one thing. And we're encouraged and incentivized to be great at one thing. And that's where you can get the most success in, uh, in the capitalist system. But then it's very difficult to be able to see all the sides of a problem. And so I, I would say more than ever before, we really have to come together and work together to solve our problems because it's quite probable that no one person can really see things in their full light. But that's both a challenge and also a blessing at the same time because when we realize that and we do come together, I think we can make significant progress. I first got introduced to the word dialogue itself when I was in college. I had a wonderful professor in cognitive science named Dr. Carl Prebrum. He was a collaborator with a quantum physicist named David Bohm. So I got introduced to his work then. And in addition to his scientific brilliance, he also had a way of communicating ideas and conversing with luminaries outside of the realm of physics and mathematics. He's famous for having a decades-long conversation with Indian mystic and philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti. And I started listening to those conversations. They were a deep dive into the fundamental nature of reality. They would be trying to understand what is time, what is consciousness, what is real. And they would do so in a very slow and methodical manner. I realized listening to those conversations that dialogue is a process and you have to have some special qualities to engage in it. And David Bohm started to promote those qualities. So let's look at the, the word dialogue itself. It actually comes from Greek, dialogos. Di means two, refers to two people, two or more people. 
engaging in conversation. But logos refers to meaning. You may have heard of logotherapy. Logotherapy was developed by the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a survivor of the Holocaust, and after spending more than two years in concentration camps, he went on to live for another 50 years. He lost his entire family, rebuilt his life, and spread his message of meaning, and how if you can make sense of suffering, you can be resilient. Suffering can really provide us clarity. You don't wish suffering upon anybody, but when you find yourself in it, your best bet, according to Viktor Frankl and people who have been through such intense adversity, is to search for meaning. So when you have a dialogue between two or more people, the aim is not to win. So now we see today that much of the exchange in communication online especially quickly deteriorates into judgment, blaming, attacking, and most of all debate. Debate is one of the oldest sports in the world. But I don't think we realize going into conversation with each other, with our loved ones, with our partner, that we're not really intending to have a debate, that we don't really seek to win anything. Even if you're right in a debate with your loved one, what is it that you win? You probably stand to lose the relationship by just fighting to be right. And sometimes we do this over the smallest things, like a memory, like a, a time when something happened and just having a dispute there can totally unravel everything that we care about in relationships. Dialogue is different in that two people do not intend to be right. They're more interested in getting it right than being right. And so it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like if one of them figures, figures it out or convinces the other, the other person loses everything. If anyone, any of the two people, hit at something correct and it's agreed upon, it's a win-win. So it's not a zero-sum game. The goal of dialogue for those participating is to work together, to collaborate in an open spirit and in a respectful way to find meaning beyond the sum of the parts of the two people. And we just don't have enough of that right now. But if people could understand how this is different from debate, from argument, and some of the subtler words that we use that sound positive but still can quickly deteriorate into this, like discussion. Discussion has this root word cuss, like percussion, concussion. Cuss means to strike or to tear, and dis means apart. So discussion actually means to tear each other apart. And I don't think that's what we aspire to do, but by just grounding ourselves in this concept of dialogue, we can begin in a more open, respectful spirit. Now, I think social media presents a real challenge to this. And as we try to parse the packaging of huge issues like justice, uh, like economic balance in our country, we get lost and you get confined to a tweet. 200 character tweet is your chance to make sense of everything that's going on. And if you make a mistake in that tweet or you leave anything out, uh, you sent something invidious. And I feel like almost everybody feels like anything I could say has the potential to incite anger in others. And that's because you can't have a dialogue with a limit of 200 characters. 
A dialogue can't take place through a meme. Dialogue can't take place through um, just through a single social media post. But we inherit that, I think, to a great extent from the way that we elect political officials through debate. I mean, what a strange thing in America that we base our understanding of how candidates will move our country forward or not move our country forward based on who can get in a gotcha moment within 30 seconds or who can say something that can become a viral hashtag within a minute. And so what you end up getting is a, a lot of straw man fallacies. That is when people argue against a point that the opponent wasn't even making. We, we saw this and, and heard this in the response to the protest, to riots, to the uprising, and those pursuing justice for George Floyd and so many other black brothers and sisters like Breonna Taylor and, and more. And there was a reaction that some people were saying, we're not going to make George Floyd a martyr. And yet nobody was actually arguing for that. But it can be, when you hear it enough, it can be a powerful, persuasive strategy. I saw this a lot in the, the primary debates coming from almost every candidate where they would say things like, I think it's important that we bring people together. And if you hear that enough, you start to believe that the other person actually wants to divide America. So if you want to participate and be a part of the healing of America, we have to be open to this concept of dialogue. And I'm trying to do my best to help people understand what this word actually means. I like to lead an activity when I'm in the hospital working with groups of patients. And we take a controversial topic like legalization of drugs, like abortion, like crime, like nuclear war, keeping nuclear weapons, developing nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, and all different kinds of topics that you might get heated debate on. But I limit all of the all the participants to just one word. The only thing they can share is the value that it touches on for them. So we go around the room, and as difficult as it is, they can only start by sharing that value. And you quickly see that everybody feels something totally different. People might say safety, freedom, patience, healing, health, understanding. But as we open it up to further dialogue from there, now the participants are interested in why this triggers safety in you. And they realize that if they were just arguing the point, they wouldn't really be arguing from the same place. There wouldn't be an understanding. They, they wouldn't be on the same reference frame. This is the beginning. And it's important to understand what it is we're even talking about. You take something like America and the history of America and people personify America. America's always hiding its shadow, for instance. Well, it begs the question, what is America? And if we say it's a country, it's this land, and you can point to all the borders, then why wasn't this land America a thousand years ago? What did this land do to make itself America? 
Well, then you might say, well, I, I, I guess it's people. Well, the people then who might have made it America, they're not here now. And so maybe it's like a corporation. The people come and go. The heads of the corporation are interchangeable and there's a hierarchy. But it gets complicated because it might seem strange to think that I would uh, live and die for a corporation. It's got to be something beyond that. So maybe it's a social construct. It's an idea. And then you start to say, well, if it's an idea, then is it really real? Well, maybe the idea isn't real, but there really is a humanitarian crisis at the imaginary border. So something that's not real has real correlates. And then you could say, well, maybe it's like a religion. That if enough people believe, you can have these real effects. But in the end, religions come and go, corporations come and go. So I sometimes philosophically think that America is an event. It has a beginning, maybe it will have an end, but it's an experiment. An experiment in democracy, an experiment in values, in virtues, but hopefully that experiment, with all its flaws, can keep testing and correcting those flaws and ideally improve that experiment. So I would encourage you to not fall into debate, not fall into argument, to invite people into dialogue with you, to explain this to others and be able to add nuance and context to these very complicated topics. We know what our perspective is and we know that we might want people to get onto our side People are ready to move people over to where they are. But the problem is, they don't always know where they're moving a person from. If you're going to help somebody move, you got to know where their old address is. And the only way to do that is to go deeper. When you do, you find out that we all have different pain points. We're forgetting that people argue, people fight, because there's somewhere inside that they're, where they're hurting and as compassionate people as spiritual people we ought to care about that and i think you approach these conversations much differently when you have a sense of where the pain is and it all begins by deep listening when i'm talking i'm only sharing what i know if i'm not willing to listen then i have nothing to learn ultimately spirituality is about trying to know the truth the most fundamental truths. And if you're a spiritual person that goes that deep, trying to answer the question, who am I? You can always operate from that sense of oneness, that sense of the ground of being. And you're less likely then to get torn up by one's own ego. I just want to say I love the um, everything that was said, Todd. Thank you so much. It's really like what I've been um, concentrating on right now, just um, the power of um, language and like how we can interact with each other and just um, know, like not, not come from a place of judgment. Mm -hmm. And I really like just what you said about 
um, gotcha moments and Facebook. I think Facebook, all too many times, we're coming from a place of judgment and trying to get that gotcha moment, get that win. And um, I could just go on and on, but I'll let other people speak. This is just like one of the topics that is a driving force for me because language is so crucial in like every aspect of our life. Could I just um, add on to that? Thank you for sharing th those insights. That we're kind of led to believe that we're all too ADD to have a dialogue. I don't really think that's true. Uh, even though things are snappy and clever and witty and short online, you do see the phenomena of long-form podcasts almost replacing short interviews on mainstream media. The Joe Rogan experience has something like hundreds of millions of downloads per month, and those conversations are sometimes three, four hours long. You also look at shows on like Netflix that have like multiple seasons, 60 episodes, and people can stay with it for a very long stretch. So people can focus and concentrate. I also think that these conversations on podcasts are almost vicarious for us. We're actually craving deep connection with each other and the social media is just like bringing out the worst in us sometimes. It's sort of like being in a car, you know you have this shield around you so if anyone makes a misstep on the road it's immediate rage and taking it very personally and we're dehumanizing ourselves sometimes in that conversation. So I think it's important to know what our goal is and and not to avoid those tools, but to come back to some of these concepts of connection and to recognize when we're just virtue signaling or if we really aim to learn, to grow, and to work with other people in our life, to collaborate with others. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you very, very much for your, your insight. Uh, you know, as, as I'm watching the events unfold, like we all are, I, I keep going back to how do you get somebody on the same platform? I mean, first of all, your, your concept is that people want to be on the same plane and dialogue for uh, an outcome, okay? That, that implies uh, finding a solution. What if the premise is not to find a solution, but as, you know, to dominate the dialogue for, uh, you know, political, social gain? How, how does one counter that? Or are we already set up in society that that doesn't happen anymore? Like the phony debates that we have between candidates. How does this all work now? Mm -hmm. It's a good point, good question. I think at least in our personal life, it's wise to recognize what the rules of the game are that the people are playing. You know, I can go play... Uh, pick up basketball with friends without a referee because there is a sense of sportsmanship, right? If there's no sportsmanship and you know that people are not going to operate within that reference frame, 
then what is it? Is it really worth investing energy and time in it if it's uh, already sabotaged from the beginning? Well, this is this is this is the what you this little moment, this sentence that you just uttered mm. is the issue. Okay, because you're we're assuming that people are virtue like the, the the people who wrote the Constitution were assuming people were virtuous, were um, you know worthy men and women and and had the same goal. We're just finding out that uh, our system doesn't work if somebody doesn't have that virtuosity and goal. So how do you, you know, assuming that that it is an unlevel field, where do you go? I do think the collective is at a crisis of meaning. And that's why I keep emphasizing the word dialogue. We may not be able to come to solutions, but if you can understand yourself better, that has real value, I think. And understanding what kind of game is being played in any kind of exchange, I think, is probably the best we can do. And by modeling that, that is... Uh, showing people how to be virtuous and, and the benefit of virtuosity. And that is that one can stay grounded. I call this compassionate detachment, which means you're not saying you don't care. Sometimes people will say, you know, I don't care what other people think, as if that's a virtue, right? But I think it's important to care. It's just not worth worrying about. So in my spiritual training my teacher suggested to practice compassionate detachment, which means you care, but you're not worried. And that takes a lot of self-awareness, self-discovery. But to this end, I started a series on YouTube. I, I hope and I humbly request you all to check out my series called Live Free or Dialogue, because I'm gonna try to model this with a lot of different people to talk about some of the most difficult issues of our time and be able to remain open, patient, but most of all, true to my values, which is kindness. That's the challenge whenever we're involved in these interactions is that we don't want to abandon ourselves. If you can be, if you can remain authentic, but open and enter into these conversations, knowing that I'm up for being convinced. I'm up for new perspective. I'm willing to look at a situation from the other side of the mountain. I think there's meaning in that, even if we don't come to an understanding or we don't come to a solution. At the very least, I can grow by taking in. You know, also, I'll just say real quickly, when it comes to news, I tend to take the majority of my information in from those who oppose the way I feel about different issues. I already know how to filter things through my own liberal upbringing and background and training and education. So I don't need to, to receive it already through that lens. I already have that lens on. And since I've been doing that for several years, I found that I'm much more understanding, much more patient. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to join a different club but I can think more clearly. And that's what we're really getting at is critical thinking and, and the art of clarity. All of these political movements are also like 
many religions, many clubs, and cults in some cases, you know, even political parties can be like a cult. They're also like a grocery store. They have like one thing on sale and you know you need that thing. So you go in there and you just feel like this is where it's at. And it may take a long time before you realize everything else is overpriced. But cults, uh, which is short for culture, is useful as a tool, as a, as a way to absorb whatever wisdom is there and to keep going. So I don't think that like having movements, clubs, religions, cultures need to be destroyed, but a person needs to be able to grow past whatever is limiting their, their vision. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Todd, for a very, very good talk. Um, I'm realizing that part of the reason that we're in the little mess we're in, and I know, you know, humanity's been getting in messes for time eternal <laughs> to get ourselves in and out, but, but it is so easy online, um, especially when you're on a keyboard, to say something unkind and it's so difficult to do it if you're looking at somebody in the eye right and we i think this whole idea of uh, let's just say safe space and all that kind of thing is really saying it has gotten so mean what we say online that i i want to shut down free speech and and you can only say things i want to hear so you know i I think we're changing the wrong thing. What we really need is more eye-to-eye, or as Maureen some of it says, me-to-me. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, obviously right now during this COVID-19 situation, we can't get together in the same sort of way. But I have found that Zoom, I really see people eye-to-eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the me-to-me, but the eye-to-eye. And you know, some people like text, some people like email, some people like, you know, phone calls. You know, I try to talk to people the way they like to be talked to. But boy, I really think when we can see each other's faces and be unhurried, you know, have set up a time and deliver it and have some, you know, can look at each other, it really makes a difference. But I don't know how to create it, you know. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it makes a huge difference to hear a person's voice, yet to see their face. And I mean, I think this is a this is a very good tool, especially during this time, as opposed to just text, tweets, posts, things like that, comments. And it's it's interesting also on social media because you end up sometimes in a debate, in an argument. And you don't even know who the other person is. So how different is that really from road rage? You know, you don't know what the person's doing, why they're driving, the way they're driving, where they're going, nothing like that, where they came from. But we quickly devolve into name calling and judgment and finger pointing and so on. It's not healthy. It's good to to catch ourselves before falling into those, those traps. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jim. Good to see you. Thanks, Todd. You Thank you. Appreciate it a lot. Um, I was just um, reflecting on the complexity, even in 
relation and dialogue between two people who know each other and how tone of voice talking about howling and harmony, harmony um, that I, I think the for me it's about being really clear about my, how my voice sounds and and the interpretation of my voice by the other person. So there's whole, I mean, to me, it seems like a huge challenge to um, say, you know, I, I might think, oh, I'm stating an idea. And the other person thinks, oh, that's a criticism. And so we have, the, I think there can be this disconnect of intention um, that can happen even within uh, a simple, you know, dialogue between two people who know each other. <laughs> so. Conversation is like food. Oftentimes we're so busy that our conversations are like fast food, just like we're too busy to prepare our own food oftentimes. And fast food is more salty, more fatty, more sugary, all of that. It's quick, it's not healthy, but we do the same thing, I think, with our communication. You have to invest in your well-being and the well-being of your partner. I think if you can have some deep, some time for deep conversation, even occasionally, it's like making a meal together. You feel much more nourished by the nuance, by the context, by the openness, by the time, by the patience, and the grounding that comes with being that present with each other. You have to ask good questions too, and lay out some of the the ideas of how you could have meaningful conversation, especially in the most intimate relationships. Because I think also with the people we are the closest with, we feel a license to be the meanest to, or more likely to hit a boiling point point with people that we're quarantining with also. But deep conversation, nuanced conversation is like making a meal from scratch. That harmony that Maureen mentioned is a concept in music. It's a very advanced skill in music theory. We can very easily understand how to sing a melody. Even people who've been playing music for a long time often think they're playing harmony or singing a harmony part, but they're not. So harmony essentially is, the whole point is to make the others sound more beautiful. And oftentimes the harmony is less noticeable or goes unnoticed altogether. But a person who is secure in themselves and uh, self-aware aspires to be able to understand music that way. And I think the same is true for love and relationships. When you love and when you have compassion, you're less self-interested. The, there's an intellectual humility. You're not trying to bulldoze somebody with your ideas. You're trying to create the environment where they can blossom. And that environment might be space. It might be silence. It might be support. It might be illumination. When a flower cannot grow, we don't blame the flower. We blame the environment. We try to improve the soil the access to sunlight, and I think the same is true in society. Thank you. <laughs>